You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Thank you, Pete, and thank you, everybody. Um, we are on week two of this wonderful series. I have quite a lot to cover. I had a couple of jokes, which I'm not going to share, because <laughs> there's too much to cover today. So, <laughs> If you want the joke, you can meet me at the coffee area. Yeah. Right, let's pray. Father, we welcome you into this place. Help us to have fun listening to your word. Speak to us, challenge us, inspire us, so we can go out there to be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name. Fantastic. So we're going to read a, a, a passage from Judges chapter 3. It's going to come up on the screen, but also if you have your Bibles, then feel free to uh, read from there as well. So the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that, they, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan and Rishatim, king of Aram, Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject to for eight years. So this is not fun. It's not good. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer called Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rashathim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Yeah? So, next slide. Again, so you see, this is happening again. So there seems to be a cycle here of relapse and recovery. So again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, be, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over them. Getting the Ammonites uh, and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, he gave them a deliverer called Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. And Ehud, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. So what I'm trying to draw your attention to here is there seems to be a cycle happening. I'm sure you can see it. It seems to be a cycle of relapse and recovery. They're doing well, then they fall, then they get into a bad place. Then God sends someone to save them, then they come back up, then they go back again, then they go down, and this cycle continues. And as you read through the book of Judges, you'll see this. I don't want to ruin it for the other people who are going to do the, you know, do the talks in the next coming weeks. But the question is, I don't know about you, but I have the kind of mind where if I see something happening over and over again, I think to myself, why is this happening? There is something at the root of this, and I want to get to the root of it. Because if I get to the root of it, then I can stop the cycle. And we can carry on a straight line as opposed to going in cycles. Yeah? yeah. Do you guys think in the same way? Yeah? yeah? Okay. So the, the, what I'm trying to focus on today is the root. Why is this happening? And I think a lot of people can probably, uh, this kind of resonates with a number of people. Because some people see their lives going in cycles at the moment don't seem to be able to find a stable, straight journey. They go up, they gain ground, they lose ground. Then they feel bad about it, and they get themselves together again, say, I'm sorry, God, and they come back up, and they're doing okay, and they go back down. 
So I'm hoping that what we learn today will be able to help you avoid this cycle of relapse and recovery and get you on a, a more progressive path in your life. Okay. Um, now, the reason why this looks quite bad and they're kind of going up and down is really, so the question is, where, what, how should it have been? If things were looking good, what should it have looked like? Now, maybe the next slide will be able to show us what they really should have been doing. So, the story actually begins way before now, when God took the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt, and he says to you, I have this wonderful land I'm going to take you to. This land is going to be an amazing place. You're not going to be slaves anymore. You're going to be landowners. You're going to run the place. You're going to have dominion over it. But I'm, I'm not going to give it all to you at the same time. I'm going to, you're going to slowly take it over. And so, they actually did get into the land. And Joshua is speaking about it here. He says, remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. So if you, if you know the geography of Israel, you can, this, I mean, this, this is a real place. So you can actually, fit, you know, you can know there is a border, there is a Jordan River, and there is a Mediterranean Sea, and all that land was meant to be theirs. The Lord your God himself will push them out, will push the inhabitants for your sake. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of the land as the Lord your God has promised you. So this is, this is meant to be the straight road, as opposed to the cycle in which they were going. But there was a condition. It couldn't just happen. You know? there, there, was some, there was a way to get there. How? In verse 6, it says, Be strong. Be very careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods or swear by the name of their gods. You must not serve their gods or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. So he told them, this is a straight road, and this is how you stay on that straight road. But Somehow they lost their way. And so they were going in cycles. And when you look at your life, can you identify with this? Are you drifting? Are you losing ground, gaining ground, then losing it again? Are you losing your enthusiasm? And when I looked at this, I felt that the main issue here was, I think they had lost their focus. I think that was it. Because they were meant to possess the land. And you almost felt like they, 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 they were in the land. They didn't have all of it. They had some of it. And they lost focus. And I think that is kind of the biggest danger in, in life sometimes. When you don't have anything, you're hungry. You're, you, want to, you want to get in there. You're full of, you know, you just want to get stuck and you pay any price. But when you get a little bit of it, a little bit of wealth, you're thinking, oh, actually, I'm doing okay for myself, you know. I'm doing quite well. And that's the danger. Some people think the danger is having nothing. Actually, the danger is having a little bit. Because you become complacent. You start to think, ah, you look at the price. You think, I have 10% already. I'm actually not doing badly. What do I have to do to get the other 90? Ah, I don't think I can be bothered, really. I think I'm just going to chill. I think I'm just going to have fun. But that is not the full potential. God has planted in us the desire to take the whole thing, to take the whole land. So the idea of settling for 10% is, is unacceptable, really. And I urge you not to accept that. I urge you to strive for the full blessing, the full potential that God has for you. 
So the main problem for me here, when I look at these cases, a lack of focus. They were fairly comfortable. They, they hadn't got all the land, but they got some of it. Now, how do, we, how do we learn? If we are people who don't want to settle for 10%, we actually want to go for the whole thing. How do, we, how do we know how to do that? And one way in which I, in my own personal walk, how do I do that? I'm very good at looking at other people who have done well. Yeah? I'm inspired by other people who have done well. And those people, you know, there's something about them that's allowed them to go all the way. And I think that we also should try and do that. And today, I have got a, a wonderful example we can look at. This is a church, uh, and uh, it, it, it's a church in a place called Thessalonica in Greece, so the place doesn't exist today. Um, but uh, at the time, there was a church there, and Paul was right into this church. And when I look at what Paul says about this church, it tells me this is a church I should be learning from, I should be looking at, because Paul, first of all, Paul is a, he's a big guy. He, he knows stuff. If he says this thing is good, it is good. Yeah? He's, a, he's a well-renowned guy. He's written a lot of the Bible. So I look at what he says about this church, and there's something about this church that's unique and that's inspiring for me. And I'm hoping that as we look at this church together today, about what did they do? Why did Paul consider, rate them so highly? Hopefully that can inspire us to think big in terms of how do we achieve our potential, the potential that God has put in us. So here, Paul is writing. I'm not going to go through all the details. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He's saying, you know, we thank God for you. He's talking about the church, and I continually mention you in my prayers. He says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. This is a good, he's saying all these good things. And he talks about how they came here. These guys were now always Christians. You know, so how did they come to this place? He says, you became imitators of us. That's Paul and the apostles of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And he says, and you became a model for all believers. Yeah, talking about a model a role model, so they were a model, so we can learn from them in Macedonia and Achaia. And, and in Macedonia and Achaia is like a kind of surrounding area, so they were, they were a model there. And it says, you go beyond there, and it says, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So I think, I want to I find out, these guys have something special, I want to know what it is. Because they have become a model to all believers. So we're going to spend a bit of time learning about these guys so that we can look at the guys and judges and think, I don't want to be going in a cycle of defeat and victory. I want to be on a trajectory of victory, which is what we want to do. So these guys are going to provide us with some, some, some knowledge, some information that we can appropriate to our lives. So what did they do? How did these guys who knew nothing about God. How did they come to a place where Paul the Apostle is saying such a good, giving such a good report about them? And I think the next slide will begin to give us a hint. So they did something. They did something that was very, very unique. First, they turned to God. So if you look at First Thessalonians, it says, therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, about you, for other people give a report of what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So these guys at one point, they knew nothing about God. And Paul and his fellow guys, they come and they say, hey, there's a God in heaven. He loves you. His son has died for you. 
And they actually listened and they said, you know what? We're going to turn away from our idols and to follow this living and true God that you tell us about. And I think that is the beginning. That is the starting point for us. And you might say, what is an idol? I mean, is it pop idol? Is it, is it X Factor? What is it? And I think an idol simply defined is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Anything is that, is that number one thing. And maybe God is uh, number two, maybe three or four. And these guys had to actually decide, do we keep this thing as number one or do we make God number one? And they choose to turn away from those idols to make God their number one. And a lot of us here will probably say we have done that already, which is great. But there might be some who will say, you know what? I'm still, I'm still in the market. I'm still kind of looking at what's out there. I can't say God is my number one. He's, out, he's, he's in the top ten, maybe. Um, and I'm still looking at it. I might move him up if there is more compelling evidence. If I see enough, maybe I can move him up. And I'm just going to spend two minutes to try and maybe say to you, why not give it another thought? Maybe today is the day for you to think, am I prepared to turn away from my idols? And for you, everybody has their own. Some people it's you know, money, some people it's career, for some people it's themselves, for some people it's the pursuit of fame I wanna, or, or the approval of people or whatever. For all of us, there is something which we either have turned away from or should be turning away from to follow the living and true God. And for me, I am a, I'm very commercially minded. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a business head. You know? So if you're, make, if you're saying to me, I should turn away from something in my hand, I have it in my hand, why should I give this up for that? You, know, you have to make a compelling case to me for me to give up what I have. And so I, recently I went to a, an investor fair in London, North London, and uh, that's what I do in my spare time, by the way. <laughs> I go to investor fairs where they tell you, you know, these are the things that are coming through. If you invest your money, you know, you can make a lot of money. So I went there. I spent hours just going from booth to booth telling me, so what's your invention? And they tell you, and they tell you the deal. If you invest this, you know, you can get that. I even went to a, this is boring. <laughs> I even went to a talk about lithium-ion batteries, you know, that are coming in the future for electric cars. I don't know very much about this, by the way. But I, was, I thought, yeah, let me find out more. Who knows? There might be a good deal here. <laughs> so I, I, sat through every, I went through stall after stall. But whatever they were selling, whether it was investing in, in a mine in Canada or invest in a medical device in the NHS, whatever it is, there were three outcomes you could get from it. You can either invest your money and lose all of it because these things were very early stage, so it may not work. Or you keep your money and you keep all of it. Or you invest your money and you make a lot of money. Those were the only three outcomes. You didn't even have to know anything about lithium-ion batteries or mining in the Congo. You didn't have to know that. All you had to know is, what am I going to get from this deal? Those were the three outcomes. And when I look at what Jesus offers, I actually don't see three outcomes. I actually see two, which is quite interesting. Jesus makes an offer, and I, I encourage you today to consider this offer that Jesus is making. If you've never really considered it, I urge you to consider it and think, is it for me? Is it something I want to get involved with? Now, the offer of Jesus actually is, I think, is, is, is very challenging in the world in which we live. 
But that's what Jesus offers. He says, I am here, I'm the son of God, I've died for you, and I want you to believe in me. And you say, why should I accept the offer? It's because, he says, if you accept my offer, the condemnation that would have come on you will come on me. And you will be free. And in fact, you become a member of my family, of the family of God. You become an adopted son and all the rights. I never really thought about this when I became a Christian. But the more I spent time in you know, following Jesus, I realized, actually, I haven't joined a movement as such. I haven't joined a religion as such. Actually, I'm the member of a family. I'm a member of a family. These headings, I think, should be the other way around, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, but, but ignore that for now. I'm a member of a family, and what that means is, being a member of a family, there are certain privileges and rights that come with that family. As a son, you are entitled by inheritance, sorry, by, by law, to the, an inheritance from your parents. So what, what's your father's comes to you, or as a daughter, what's your, what's your father's comes to you. So suddenly, I realize I have an inheritance, and the inheritance starts now. And I've only put two scriptures here. I had more, but there was no space to put here. If you read the Bible, you begin to see the things that come to you for making Jesus your number one. Not only do you become a member of a family, you have an inheritance waiting for you. He gives you power. Some of these powers involves praying for the sick now, and they will be healed. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? You see someone who is sick, and you say, in the name of Jesus, be healed, and they are healed. That's part of the deal. This is part of the deal. The other side of the deal, I'm not going to go with too much. I don't want to oversell it, but, you know, if you want to know more, you can speak to me later. But that's one part of the deal. You come, you come into a family with a lot of privilege, both now and in the life to come. But what if you say, no, I'll keep my money. I will not, I will not invest. Now, in the North London Fair, you would walk away with your money. But Jesus says, no, you don't walk away with your money. You actually walk away with your own sin, which means you get judged for your sin. So there is no middle ground. Either you completely lose everything, or you completely gain everything. And I think to myself, why would I not take this offer? I mean, there's only two options. Lose everything. You gain everything. And for me, I think, I think I'd rather join this family. I think I'd rather enjoy someone else taking the pain, the punishment for my sins, and giving me a chance to enjoy the blessings of being a member of God's family. So I urge you to consider it. And at the end of this service, Pete will be, I believe it's Pete, <laughs> will be uh, making an offer to give you, give you a chance to make that commitment to Jesus. To say, you know what? Having considered the offer, one side and the other, I choose to, I choose to say yes. And if you're in that position to do that, then Pete will be helping to lead you uh, in, in prayer. So back to our, our, our story. So first of all, they turned and accepted the offer that Jesus made. What else did these guys do? Did this church do? So the next slide is going to tell us. So did, this is something else that is very unique, and I think it's something that challenged me as well to think, am I actually doing this? So we know that they turned from God, sorry, turned to God, from idols, to serve the living and true God. So that's one thing they were doing. But they weren't just serving and to wait for his, for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
you know, I talked about the, coming, talked about the, the other side of the deal. So that, that's the other side of the deal that would have happened. And they said, no, we're not going to take the wrath on ourselves. Jesus has paid for it, so we're going to turn and serve him and to wait. And what strikes me here, actually, is the focus that they had. The focus. They weren't just serving the God. They, know they were waiting for his son from heaven. And I don't know about you, have you ever had to wait for the uh, delivery guy to come? Yeah, he, you're waiting for Amazon. You've ordered it. It's going to come. What are you doing? You're not thinking, you know what, I'm just going to go somewhere else. I'm just going to go to the neighbor's house. I'm just going to pop into the city center. No, you, you're doing things, yeah? But you are, you're kind of waiting. You're thinking the doorbell is going to ring. I better be aware of what I do so as not to miss the guy who's coming with my Amazon package. Yeah? It's different from how you would probably operate normally. I mean, you're not sat down doing nothing. You are doing things, but you're doing it with a view to a guy pressing the doorbell. Yeah? Also, if you're an athlete, let's use, I, I, I go running every week a few times, and when there's a marathon coming, it's three weeks to, or two weeks, you're thinking, you're not just running. You might see other guys who are running. You're all running, yeah? Everyone's jogging, everyone's running. But the guy who has a marathon coming, he's really running. I mean, he's really focusing on this run. He knows in three weeks' time, someone's going to, you know, I'm going to be there, and I need to do this thing. The other guys are also running. They're all jogging, everyone's smiling, but he knows. In fact, he's not only is he running, he's checking his time, you know, he's eating right, he's, 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 you know, he's telling his friends, I'm doing a marathon. Why? There's a marathon coming. So he's running, but he's running with someone with a purpose. With a focus, there's a marathon coming. And I think these guys, that's what they were doing. They were thinking, Jesus is coming back. I will serve as someone who is waiting for his return. And that focus drove them. So they might be in a position where, you know, they could go left or right. Oh, okay, it's a, it's a Sunday morning. You know, what do you do? I'm not sure if I should go to church. You know what? I don't know how long it's going to be before this Jesus comes. I need to really be on my game. You know what? I'm going to go. I may not have a chance next week to go, yeah? So while we have it now, let's make the most of it. I'm going to go. Or there's a friend who is not feeling great, and this friend is a bit, oh, they're unsure, they're a bit discouraged about things, and, and they're thinking, you know, maybe I should call them next week, you know? No, actually, Jesus might, I might not have the opportunity. I'm going to call them now. There's a purpose. There's an energy, there's a focus about the way they served, and I'm, very, I'm going to focus a bit more on this wait-and-serve approach. What does it actually mean? What does it look like from just serving to serve as someone who is waiting for the return of Jesus? So, before we go into the next phase, we're going to have a one-minute, I believe, one-minute uh, interlude to turn to, your, turn to your neighbor and have a chat. Just think about it. I've talked about this, this return, this coming Jesus returning. But it's not something that many times we think about. So you're going to have a one-minute discussion with your neighbor on the question above, which is, how often do you think about the imminent return of Jesus? So you have one minute. I'm happy to... 
Okay, I think we have uh, we've had a discussion. I uh, I put the question up there just to jog it out because I, for me I, I I I could I could go weeks without even thinking about it, and yet for these guys the focus that's what really drove them, and I think it's something as Christians we should think about more. Because Jesus, in the next slide, is definitely going to come. That's one thing we are very sure of. He was very clear in the scriptures. In fact, this is the ascension. We all celebrate the ascension of Jesus. We all know know, it happened from the Mount of Olives. But you'd be surprised to know that whilst he was ascending, the Bible says, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And uh, they were looking intently into the sky. This is Jesus' disciples. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He will come back. And also, we know it's not just going to happen. We know it's going to be sudden. And Jesus spoke about this extensively in his parables about how there will be a sudden return. And there is just a, and Paul writes to them. He says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he was, these guys were aware of this stuff. And he was saying to them, I don't even have to remind you. You know this is going to happen. And I sense that sometimes we forget it's going to happen. And so because of this lack of urgency and focus, we pursue a different kind of path, which is why we go around in circles. For a person who is absolutely focused, Jesus is coming back, I've got to be on my game, I've got to be focused, then that person is probably less likely to be distracted by a few things because they know, I don't have time for that, I don't have space for that. Someone's coming back. I've got to be ready for him. Yeah? So they, this is, a, this, is a, this is a, you can look at this in the scripture. This is something I think that should drive us more in the way that we see life. So what should we do in light of this revelation? Well, the second slide tells us, and this is Paul writing to this church. So the first one we've already read, you know very well. And the second thing he says, but since we belong to the day, day, let us be self-controlled. We're going to look into this and put on the armor of faith. We're going to look into this and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. So this is what he, he says to them. Since we know this is going to happen, how should we go about our lives? And these four things are things that Paul mentions in his letter to these guys. And I think we should look at them one by one. So self-control, what does that mean? It's not a fashionable word. No one wants to, everyone wants to be free and just go wild. But what does that mean? The next slide tells us that self-control is required in the way we manage ourselves. We have responsibility, I think, to manage ourselves. We're going to be in circumstances uh, where people are going to, things are going to happen. But before we start thinking about other people, we're going to think about ourselves. Am I a person who explodes in anger? Occasionally on the bus, when the driver is not 
moving fast enough. Or am I a person who, you know, is shot with people? Or am I a person who, you know, do I manage my emotions? Am I managing myself well? And we're going to need self-control as we wait for his return to manage ourselves. And Paul actually mentions one particular thing in this letter. And he says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. And there he's talking about the issue of revenge. Yeah? In every one of us, there is a desire when someone offends us to get back at them. But if we're going to wait for Jesus, if we're going to stay on this road, we, cannot, we can't afford to do that. Jesus encourages us to forgive those who offend us. So he talks about you know, the issue of revenge and unforgiveness. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who still, who still hold on to a grudge, hold on to unforgiveness. They have people in their lives who they think, I can forgive everybody else, but that person, no way. I will never let them go. They hurt me too badly. And today I will encourage you, that is just going to plunge you into that cycle I was talking about. You have to let go. You have to ask God to help you to forgive. And occasionally, having forgiven, it will come back again. And you have to be able to say, no, I'm not going to let it come into my heart. I'm going to let them go. So Paul talks about that. Paul again writes to another person slightly out of this church, Titus. I'm not going to read everything, but it says, the grace of God has come. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a life self-controlled. Why? While we wait for the blessed hope. Yeah? While we wait. We have to sometimes say no. No. Unforgiveness, no. Sometimes we might be really, really angry, but we have to say to ourselves, ourselves, no, I'm not going to give them, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to hurt that person. I'm not going to say that word. I really want to just tell them that they're, they're, they're really stupid and they're a moron. And if they try it again, I will make sure they never try it again. Sometimes you just want to do that. But you've got to say, you know what? I'm going to exercise self-control. I'm not going to do that. So that's one thing that will help us stay on this narrow path, this straight road, allowing us to go on a trajectory rather than in cycles. The second thing that Paul talks about there is faith. I think faith helps us to in the way we engage with God, and also to operate in our capacity as his children. I find that many times people do not recognize that now that we have become Christians, we actually have some authority. We actually are children of the king. We now belong to a kingdom, and faith allows us to operate in that capacity. For example, Paul says to them, pray continually. So when we pray, we've got to pray in faith. We've got to believe that now that we are reconciled to God, if we speak to God, if we ask him for anything, he will answer us. We've got to believe that and have faith that God is actually listening and answering our prayers. In addition, there are other things here. He says, you know, in our capacity, we can, say, we can lay hands on the sick and they will get well. We've got to believe it. He says we can cast out demons. We can see people being oppressed by an evil force. And we can command that force to let go of them. And it will be so. We have to believe it. This is our new inheritance as children of God. There is no point saying, I'm a child of God, but I, you know, I, I just, I'm, no, no, no. You now have authority. And you need to operate in that authority. And faith allows us to do that. And on this road that we're traveling, there will, be, there will be times when forces will try and knock us back down, back into a, into a path of a cycle of relapse and recovery. But this time, we've got to say, you can't knock me back into the cycle because I'm a child of God. You can't knock me back into that cycle. And we stay firm on the path, on the trajectory of progress. 
The next thing Paul talks about, apart from faith, is love. And I think love is important in our interaction with other people. I can assure you, there will be a lot of opportunities to get really upset with people. But we have to show them love. In fact, Paul talks about a number of things there in that letter. He says, warn those. So warning. He says, encourage. He says, help the weak. And he says, be patient. And we're going to need that. That we're going to come across people who are, who are disheartened. We should love them and encourage them to come along on this journey with us. There are going to be people who are weak. We owe them a responsibility to help them. And also, we have to be patient with people as well, you know? But one thing I thought I'd draw your attention to is the warning. When do you warn somebody? Because nobody likes to warn anybody. Everybody likes everyone to just be doing okay. But quite frankly, I think warning is an important part of love. It's an important part. If you see your friend who is struggling with, with overdrink, they're drinking too much because maybe they're struggling at work, I think you owe them a responsibility to say to them, you know, this drinking, you need to do something about it. You need to tell them. The book of Proverbs says the wounds of a friend are actually better than the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes love is being tough. It's being, it's being saying, you know, I don't, I'm not going to enjoy this, but I need to tell them that this drinking needs to be dealt with. Or if you see a friend who has not actually forgiven or they, they're living with unforgiveness, at some point, you th I think you need to say to them, you know, you've been telling me about this, your stepmother that you hate. I think it's about time you forgave her. Is that going to be fun? No, it's not going to be fun. It's actually going to be hard to do. But I think, as a friend, that's one way to show love. You owe them a responsibility to do that, even though it might hurt you in the short term. And then the final one he talked about is hope. And I think hope is, is, is helps us to deal with the circumstances of life. On this journey that we travel, we will encounter challenges. Even Jesus did. I mean, he was crucified, you know. <laughs> so not everybody liked him, and he had his challenges. But we have to have hope. Hope keeps us going. Hope helps us to endure because whatever challenge we face, we are now children of God. It's not going to last forever. We belong to a new kingdom. And I think the hope of God allows us. In fact, Paul writes to these guys. By the way, these guys were suffering. They weren't exactly having fun. It was tough. But Paul says to them, I want you to rejoice always. I want you to give thanks in all circumstances. And you need hope for that. You need to believe that God is with you in the challenges that we face. And that God is going to come through to help you. And hope helps us to do that. Okay? So where do we find all these things then? All these wonderful things. Love, hope, faith. Hey. Where do we find them? The Bible talks about the Spirit. God has given us His Spirit. To help us. In this particular scripture, you can see some other things listed there. All of them are all listed there. The Spirit of God lives in us. When we come to Jesus and accept Him, within us lives the Holy Spirit that helps us to have self-control, helps us to have faith, helps us to have love, helps us to have hope. And also Paul particularly writes to them and says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench Him. Don't ignore Him. Don't shove Him to the side. You know, cultivate a life where we ask God's Spirit to do His work in us and we rely on Him to help us on this journey that we are on. So in summary, God's people in Judges lost their purpose and focus and slipped into a cycle of relapse and recovery. 
However, we can learn from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians how we can come into the kingdom by turning away from our idols and how we can go on to fulfill our potential. To come into the kingdom, we first have to turn away from idols and accept Jesus. And once we're in the kingdom, we have to live as those who are waiting for his return and to serve with that focus in mind. We can do this through a life of self-control, faith, love, hope, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Can we just bow our heads for a moment of reflection? you are still thinking about God, whether he has a place in your life, I hope that the the offer on the table is appealing to you. And Pete is going to, you know, lead you in a prayer in a minute to respond to that. But if you say to yourself today, "I, I actually have not thought about the return of Jesus. I haven't been living as someone who is waiting I have lost the Holy Spirit in me. I need to reignite him in me. Then I can say to you, you're in the right place. There is a song, a hymn by Fanny Crosby, that says, To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. He yielded his life and atonement for sin. He opened the life gates that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus, his Son, and give him the glory, great things he has done. You might also be here today and you think, I want to rejoice, but things are, life is tough and things are hard. Maybe you have depression, maybe it's a clinical condition, or maybe it's just a spirit of heaviness. I just want to pray for you now. In the name of Jesus, I break every spirit of heaviness, every spirit of depression. I set God's children free right now from those forces. I decree they are healed. Whoever is here, Lord Jesus, that is carrying depression, that is sad, that feels a cloud over them, I lift that cloud in the name of Jesus. I break every chain that's held them down, stopping them from rejoicing. I release a new joy in their lives in Jesus' name.